Well, hey, everyone, how are we doing today? Doing well? Yeah? Uh, it's good to see you. A few people are wooing over here. That's fantastic. That's always a good sign. Um, hey, something I've been thinking about lately. Have you guys, have you guys, I'm sure you all have, you've all heard this, the statement, there is no I in team, right? We've all, we've all heard that. But I actually really value the statement that a lot of people follow that up with when they say, but there is a me in team. I really like that statement. I've placed a high value on me in any competitive situation that I've ever found myself, which, you, you know, think what you want about me, but, but this, is, this is true. And this goes all the way back to my time in middle school when I was a middle school basketball player, which was probably the peak of my basketball career, like seventh grade or so, um, and then this body panned out after that. So, um, so I remember being in the playoffs of our middle school, like, championship thing, and in the semifinal game, we were down by two with 12 seconds left, and I got the ball passed to me like four feet behind the three-point line, and I was like, this is my moment. And so I, I pulled up, and I took the shot. It was a perfect release, like just beautiful. And the shot was right on line, nothing but the bottom of the net. I pumped my fist, crowd went crazy. My dad actually still has this on video, and we watch it occasionally when we want to reminisce together. And... and uh, um, it was, it was awesome. There's 3.7 seconds left, but to make a long story short, on the next play, someone on my team blew a defensive assignment, and the other team made a buzzer beater, and we lost by one, and the season was over. After the game, I walked over to my dad, who was a coach, and I said, well, I did my job. Unfortunately, my dad um, doesn't have great hearing. He actually wears hearing aids, and he didn't bring his hearing aids to the gym that day, and so he said, what? And so I said loud enough for him to hear again, well, I did my job. Unfortunately, it was also loud enough for the rest of my team to hear what I was saying. And they looked sad and hurt, and my dad looked extremely disappointed, which meant that it was time for a life lesson from dad. He went on for about the next two hours about the values of cooperation and teamwork and bringing people together instead of separating yourself from the rest of the people around you. And, uh, and he also said, you know what, this is gonna really damage your ability to lead on this team next year. And if you continue this, your leadership capacity moving forward won't be all that great. My dad and I had a good talk that day and it's something that, that we... We look back on a lot as, as we find ourselves in different leadership roles and, and we talk about leadership. And today on all of our campuses and online and through our friends inside the incarcerated church, CF Inside, um, we're continuing our series called The Making of a Leader. And I love that we're talking about leadership as a church. And today we're gonna head into a chapter of the Bible that Many of us, when we get to a chapter like this, when we're reading the Old Testament and we see a chapter where there's this list of names, many of us would be tempted to just skip right over it and say, well, I did my reading today, got that chapter knocked out. Um, but we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna do that today. Last week, we saw Nehemiah come 1,000 miles to solve a problem. The king of Persia had authorized him to repair the walls of Jerusalem, so Nehemiah shows up. He, he assesses assesses the situation, and then he begins to gather people together, challenging them to rebuild the walls. Here's what we read at the end of Nehemiah chapter two. Nehemiah writes, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. 
Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. He went on to say, the next slide. There it is. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. As we turn the page to chapter three, we see that Nehemiah lists through 32 verses in our text today, the names of the men and women who were responsible for repairing the wall and the area of the, of the, of the wall that they were responsible for rebuilding. If you look at this chapter, you'll see there are a lot of names listed here. A lot of people from all sorts of different social and economic backgrounds who had to understand the values my dad tried to impart on me that day in middle school. Cooperation, collaboration, teamwork, working together. What's interesting is that in our world today, these values, values of teamwork, seem to be like revolutionary ideas when it comes to leadership. In their book, The Leadership Challenge, James Cousins and Barry Posner write this. Collaboration has at last assumed its rightful place among the processes for achieving and sustaining high performance. In a more complex, wired world, the winning strategies will be based on the we, not I, philosophy. Now, what's, what's interesting about this is that leadership book after leadership book that I currently have in my office describes the importance and value of getting people to work together. Um, collaborative work environments are, are so popular right now. Um, actually, the Huffington Post blog argued that collaboration is at the core of the modern workplace. Coop, uh, competition is out and cooperation is in. There are platforms nowadays like, like Slack and Google Hangout and Yammer and HipChat to help people work better together. And yes, HipChat is a real thing. It's where people who are hip chat or something. I don't really know what it is. But, but this actually isn't all that revolutionary of an idea, right? Today, we are studying a text written in 430 BC that serves as a 2,500-year-old leadership guide. It's not a theory. It's not a strategy. This is an example that we're going to study today, something that happened. And that's why we are not going to skip over chapter 3 like we may be tempted to do. Because the names that we read in this chapter, they show us something. They show us a concrete example that effective leaders get people to work together. But before we really dig into this text, let's just take a moment and understand why this statement even matters. Like, why does it matter for anyone who is a leader, which if we remember from week one, that leadership is defined by influence. So if you have influence, which... Anyone listening to me right now has influence in some way, shape, or form, so everyone qualifies as a leader. Why is it important for us to work together with other people, and why is it important for us to get people to work together? Well, the answer is simple, and we all know the answer. Um, we can't accomplish much by ourselves, right? Like, we can't do much on our own. Take Cornerstone Fellowship, for instance, our church. 
We cannot accomplish what God has called us to accomplish, the responsibility he's given us to repair the fabric of the East Bay. We cannot do this. We cannot make sure that families are getting put back together. We, we can't help men and women find their God-given gifts and passions and, and, and callings. We can't help, help people break free from addiction. We can't help people know and feel and understand in the depths of their being that they are loved by a God who created them, who, who died for them, and who conquered death for them. We cannot do that. We cannot accomplish this by ourselves. We have to work together. And here in our study today, we see that Nehemiah understood that in order for him to repair what God had called him to repair, he couldn't work alone either. You see, God tasked Nehemiah with moving back to Jerusalem to rebuild the broken down city walls. By this time in their history, God's people were struggling. Um, The city was in turmoil because the Jews were completely vulnerable to attack and harassment from their enemies. Um, Their worship was continually disputed. Wild animals were actually roaming through their their streets. It wasn't safe. They couldn't uh, organize a local government. Um, It was a mess. Without walls, they could not go back home. And so this issue, this problem had to get repaired. The walls had to be fixed. When Nehemiah arrives, he discovers that some of the original walls are actually still kind of there. They're not completely destroyed. The Babylonians didn't completely obliterate the structure, but it does need to be repaired. Now, the even crazier part is that these original walls, the walls that Nehemiah is seeing now that are all broken and tattered and and mostly burned up and destroyed, these original walls took hundreds of years to build. Hundreds of years. And this is the astounding thing about Nehemiah's leadership. The rebuild project did not take decades or centuries or or even months. The rebuild project that Nehemiah puts together to, to rebuild the walls took 52 days to complete. 52 days. My wife has been asking me to get rid of an old couch that's been sitting in our garage for the last eight months. And she's, she reads this text, and here's what I'm going to be preaching this week. And she's like, what's your excuse? And I told her, honey, Nehemiah was called by God, and he had lots of help. He organized teams of people and put them together. And I say this under my breath so she can't hear me, because I don't want to sleep on that couch in the garage. However, these things about Nehemiah that I say under my breath to my wife are, are very true. He had help. He organized teams, and he was called by God. But how did he do it? How did he get, and just picture this, how did he get these unique groups of people, there were 41 groups of people, we'll get to that in a little bit, but there are 41 groups of people all from different backgrounds. They are completely different from one another. Like if if we were to make this today, it'd be groups of people that have different um, ethnicities, different socioeconomic status, different um, cultural understandings, different political affiliation, um, different ages. They're different people, and he gets all of them to work together at the same time. How in the world do you get people to do that? And furthermore, what can we learn in 2018? And I don't know if you agree with me on this. This is something I've been thinking about a lot and feeling, and I'm sure a lot of you are with me. 2018, a time in the world, a point in history, where it seems like divisiveness is way more prevalent than unity. 
And this is for sure true outside of the church, but I think it's true inside the church as well. So what can we learn from this? How can we put this into action? How can we, how can we mobilize one another and work together? Well, let's check out Nehemiah chapter 3, and we're going to start right in verse 1. If you haven't turned there already, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to read through a list of names and see what God can teach us today. All right, verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. Okay, we're going to stop right there because this is important um, to see how Nehemiah starts this section. The first name that he writes are what? The priests, right? The high priests who's leading the other priests. And they begin the wall project at the Sheep Gate. And here's why this is significant. The Sheep Gate was located right behind the temple. And it was through this gate that all the sacrifices were brought in. Hundreds and hundreds of sheep and lambs and other animals were brought in through this gate to be sacrificed. And this was central to the worship of God by, by, by the Israelites. This is a huge part of the relationship between God and his people. At this point, temple worship was just not happening. So because this part of the wall was completed first, all of a sudden Nehemiah makes it possible for the people to start worshiping again. He didn't start with the business or the commerce sections of the wall. He didn't start with the military sections of the wall. The first priority that Nehemiah had was to complete the worship section of the wall, to allow people to come before Yahweh, to allow people to come before their God and spend time with them, for the temple to be filled with God's spirit and God's people once again, you see, Nehemiah knew that repairing the wall wasn't just about repairing the wall. No, it was about repairing the relationship between God and his people. And he didn't just, Nehemiah didn't just gather part of the Israelites together to be reconnected with God. He gathered all of them. So we got all of them to work together, and knowing God was the priority. And this is the first thing we learn from Nehemiah. The first leadership principle we learn from Nehemiah is that effective leaders get people to work together by knowing God and prioritizing accordingly. Listen, from everything we've seen up to this point, we're three chapters and like five weeks into the series of Nehemiah, which is pretty good for Cornerstone. We're moving along. But from everything we've seen in Nehemiah, we, we know that this guy has a very solid relationship with God, right? Like he had a connection with God. Two weeks ago, if you weren't here two weeks ago to hear Francis Chan teach from this platform, I, I encourage you, go back, watch that message. It's phenomenal. But, but Francis talked about Nehemiah's relationship with God, and he did this a lot and, and this thing, and I didn't know what this meant, but I was like, I want that with God, whatever you're doing, Francis. Um, I actually have a friend who said that now he walks around the park talking to God like this, and I'm like, you probably look pretty foolish. Um, you might not want to do that anymore. But, but one of the things that, that he talked about was, was, was how important and how valuable this was to Nehemiah, how important the relationship with God was and how it informed his decisions and his leadership and his priorities, he took his relationship with God very seriously. And I believe that this should be true of everyone and anyone who considers themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. That our leadership and our influence is determined through our relationship with God. 
Now, with that being said, you can actually be a leader and build a successful career without making God your number one priority. You can do that. People will follow you. But I believe that you won't really be a leader worth following. And I don't think you'll build something that lasts, something that has significance and meaning, something that impacts people for all of eternity beyond this present circumstance, beyond this this temporary life we find ourselves in. I'm willing to bet that the way you lead won't actually end up mattering all that much if you are not dialed in in your relationship with God, if God is not the priority. A couple months ago, I had um, our Livermore staff start reading a book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader by Peter Scacero. And if you're looking for a leadership book to read right now, read that one. It's a phenomenal read, and uh, it's absolutely wrecking our Livermore staff right now, like in a a good way. Um, I'll sit in leadership meetings, and people are are crying and sharing all these things that, that, that are just keeping them from being an emotionally healthy leader and and they're emoting and feeling feelings and I'm like, can you stop? You're making me feel uncomfortable. But it's great. It's really good. In one of the chapters about this very thing, about knowing God, about knowing Jesus, Pete Scacero wrote this. He said, we can boldly teach truths we don't live. We can boldly teach truths we don't live. Have you ever done that? Have you ever prescribed a truth to someone that you haven't fully digested yourself? And then just felt that like, ugh, after. You know, I've done this a time or two as a pastor. When I've said something to someone or said something from a platform where I'm like, man, this is something God's convicting me of right now. Something that I'm not, I'm not living. Scazzaro goes on to quote Jesus in Matthew 7 when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of heaven and, and said that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name and performed many miracles, but Jesus will look at them and say plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Now, how in the world can Jesus say, I never knew you, when any of us who've opened up a Bible before know that God knew us when we were in our mother's womb. So how could Jesus say, I never knew you? Well, well, the meaning and the connotation behind that word know in that passage in Matthew 7, it, it, it refers to like this intimate, personal knowing of relationship with Jesus, a oneness. It's a relationship with Jesus as the priority, leading with God first and foremost. One of the best things we can ask ourselves this week in whatever area of influence we find ourselves in is where does, where does God fall on my list of priorities? Trust me, an honest look at this question can be a very convicting one. And through this study in Nehemiah and the messages we've received and the book I'm reading with our Livermore staff, I've been challenged personally to reassess my rhythm with God. Um, as of last week, I started scheduling a meeting with God every morning, the same way I schedule meetings with people on my team, people that report to me. I started scheduling a, a meeting with God. I call it Steve and God, and it's in my office, and God comes all the way there. It's awesome. Um, we have a great time. But this has, been, this has been such a great next step with Jesus for me, a step to ensure I make God the priority. And you're like, you're a pastor. You should always, yes. Of course, and this is one of the best ways that I can do that, is to ensure that God is my priority, to be led by him first and foremost. You know, maybe in your daily rhythm, there's something like this you need to do. Schedule time with God instead of 
squeezing God in when some space becomes available or creating room to, to be in the presence of your creator. Um, maybe even spend some time this week thinking about the things you do and the time you spend with the people you really want to invest in, the people that you really care about and love and, and want to get to know. Like, like for me, every week I, I have a date night with my wife. Um, every day I have intentional time that I spend with my son. Once a week I go and hang out with some friends just to catch up and see how they're doing. Every Tuesday, I call my mom because my dad told me I need to and because I love her. And, 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 I, and I started thinking about that. Like, I invest time in those relationships because those relationships really matter to me. Now, why would God be any different than that? Why would God get any less? Like, if I'm trying to invest in those relationships, trying to make sure those people know how much I love them and care about them and I want to get to know them, like, why would God just get leftovers? Take a look this week and, and see where, where God ranks, where he lands on your list of priorities based on time spent. And if you're anything like me, it could be a bit of a punch in the gut, but it also could be an opportunity for change. If we're gonna, if we're gonna lead people, if we're gonna influence people to work together to achieve God's ends, then we have to make sure that our relationship with God is our priority. All right, look at verse two. Verse two, the men of Jericho built the adjoining section and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hesena. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banna, also made repairs. There are beautiful words that show up 26 times in chapter 3. We just read a couple of them. When Nehemiah says the words next to, we cannot miss what he's communicating here. You see, these families were working together side by side to repair what was broken. Like I said, 26 different times he says the words, writes the words next to. Such an important part of Nehemiah's leadership. And the second thing that we learn is that effective leaders get people to work together by knowing their people and positioning them with purpose. We'll, we'll unpack this um, in just a moment. But as we look at how Nehemiah positioned people, we see that, that there are no gaps in the building of this wall. Nehemiah is leading 41 different groups of people, like we talked about earlier, from all different backgrounds, and he's getting them to work next to one another. This is, this is what it looked like. So this is the wall that Nehemiah was repairing. And each one of these names that you can't read from where you're sitting is a different group of people. So Nehemiah got all these people to work together, and there's no gaps there's just these, these people that are working and repairing the wall side by side, right next to one another. They each knew their task. They were completely aware of their assignments. How in the world do you do this? Well, Nehemiah knew his people and he positioned them on purpose and with, with a purpose. This is so cool. Like, I love, I love this. I was nerding out on this all week, how Nehemiah assigns these teams what he does is he takes the teams and he puts them in an area of the wall to repair what was closest to where they lived. Like if we just go through verse 10, Jediah made repairs opposite his house. Uh, verse 17, Hashabiah carried out repairs for his district. Um, 23, Benjamin and Hashub uh, made repairs in front of their house. Azariah made re repairs beside his house. The priest made repairs each in front of his own house. Zadok made repairs opposite his house. Meshulam made repairs 
um, opposite his living quarters. Like they were positioned, these people were positioned in a way. They were positioned in a way that while they were building the wall, they were actually fortifying a part of their own residence. Let me ask us all a question. Would you be more motivated to work hard and labor for hours on end if you knew, if you knew that the section of the wall you were repairing was literally protecting your family? Of course we would. Of course we would. It's why we see parents act like so irrationally when it comes to their children. Like, like the, the mom I read about this week who enrolled in all of the same college classes as her daughter to make sure her daughter was doing all of her work. That's crazy. Or, 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 the dad, or the dad who spent $50,000 to recruit a baseball team that would beat his son's former team who didn't give him enough playing time. His son is 10. 10 years old, and he spent $50,000. I mean, have you ever watched an Easter egg hunt where parents are trying to help their kids get Easter eggs? No joke. I saw one time a dad check another dad like it was the Stanley Cup Finals trying to get one of those plastic eggs filled with stale jelly beans. I was like, what are, what are you doing? Is this an Easter egg hunt or the Hunger Games? I can't, I can't tell. Why do we do this? Why do parents act like this? Why do we act so crazy and so irrationally when it comes to our family? Well, it's because we will do anything for the ones we love. We will do anything for the people we care about. We care about what is closest to us. And leaders who get people to work together are hyper aware of what matters to the people they're leading. Not, you know, Nehemiah, Nehemiah figured this out. It's so brilliant how Nehemiah does this. He gets all the people to care about the work they're doing, not because he delegated parts of the wall to them, not because he's like, you work there, you work there, you work there. No, he took each specific family and said, hey, you're gonna work right where your home is. You're gonna work right where your home is. He gave them responsibility over a part of the wall that he knew, he knew would matter to them. You know, I think when, when we're passionate about our, our responsibilities, when we realize how much our responsibilities hit close to home, I think it drives us to figure out how to fix the brokenness around us. I mean, can you think of any brokenness today that hits close to your home? Is there brokenness that you can have a hand in restoring, mending, and repairing? Are there families nearby, friendships you have, neighbors that are hurting, injustices that you see right where you are? I firmly believe, Cornerstone, I firmly believe that God has positioned us here on purpose, with a purpose, and for a, for a purpose. We are positioned right where we are right now because God knows the capability we have to repair what is broken right here in the East Bay through his power at work within us. This is our opportunity to partner with God in repairing the fabric of the East Bay as God has called us to do. And I think it's a lot like what God had called Nehemiah to repair. In, in calling Nehemiah and his people to repair the wall and calling us to repair the fabric of the East Bay, God is calling both of us to fix things that are broken right near our own home. And if we're gonna maximize our potential, if, if we're gonna ignite our passions, we have to be concerned about our home and our communities and move forward together. But here's the deal. Here, here's, here's the thing about Nehemiah is that he would not have been able to ignite this passion in his people if he didn't really know his people. Like, he has to know them well enough to know where they lived and then put them in the right spot, right? If we're going to work together, we have to know the people we're working with. 
In the past, I've shared my, my admiration um, for those who have conquered addiction and who have healed from their past afflictions or whatever had previously captured them. Since 1935, Alcoholics Anonymous has helped people beat the addiction of alcoholism. And most of us have heard of the 12-step program and can probably even say the first step. We admit that we are powerless over alcohol. In his book, Leaders Eat Last, Simon Sinek talks about the 12-step program and talks about a conversation he had with a man named John who said to Simon, hey, do you want to know the secret behind AA? You want to know who gets sober and who doesn't? And Simon was like, yeah, tell me. And John said, it's simple. It's two words. Step 12. Step 12. He went on to explain that few, if any, alcoholics enrolled in AA will actually find their sobriety until they complete the 12th step. Even those who complete steps 1 through 11 but not step 12 are very likely to drink again. And, and here's what step 12 is. This is step 12. It is the commitment to carry this message to another alcoholic. The 12th step is all about service. It's all about helping someone else repair what is broken in their life. I often think about the church as one big recovery group. People who know what has been fractured in each other's lives, working and serving one another to bring healing to the brokenness. You see, we're all, we're all broken. We're all recovering. But in order to truly work together and repair what is broken, we have to know people and we have to make a, a step 12 commitment to one another that we will carry the message of Christ to one another, that we will be there for one another, that we will care for one another and we will help each other heal and repair and recover even in the midst of extreme differences. You know, one of the, one of the things that I love is, is the prayer of St. Francis when he, when he said, we must, seek, we must seek to understand more than to be understood. You guys, I believe that this is what it looks like to work next to one another, to break down walls of insecurity and, 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 and fear of past mistakes, to embrace who we are as a part of this body and the repairs that can be made in and through our stories and experiences and suffering and successes as we seek to understand and know the people we're sitting by right now. Let, let's, pray, let's pray this week. God, open my eyes to who you have placed next to me. Open my eyes to those people that you have placed in my life. Who'd you position me by? Who have you placed me next on purpose? Because my bet is that God has positioned each of us. There's someone already a part of, of our community group or serve team or family or, or workplace or neighborhood, someone we see every single week that God has put us there on purpose to help that person heal. We gotta have our eyes open to that possibility and ask God to bring those people to light. Maybe God's already putting a name on your heart or someone who you just know needs to be served and, and, and they need help to repair what is broken. Someone who needs to know that they're not alone, that they're known, which is such an important final piece of all this. See, in this chapter, Nehemiah lists 75 different names. He writes down 75 names. He knows his people. He knows where they live. He knows what matters most to them and he knows their name. 
It's like he, he, he writes out all their names here in this chapter and is saying to each of them, hey, I see you, I know you, you you're, you're important, you matter. I, I'm acknowledging that you're working and you're valuable. I know your name. Now, I don't know about you, but I am absolutely terrible at names. So what Nehemiah does here in this chapter is really impressive to me. Like if you gave me a pen and paper right now and said, Steve, write down 75 names of real human beings you actually know, we would be here a while. Like it would be a tough day. Um, when I was a youth pastor at, here at this church, when I first started out, there was a student who the first weekend I came to Cornerstone introduced himself to me. Or actually, I introduced myself to him. And then he was, he was in our high school ministry for four years, and apparently every weekend for four years, I introduced myself to him. Yeah, it's terrible. The, the student that I'm talking about um, loves to make fun of me for this. Like, he loves telling this story. It's, it's something that he just gets a big kick out of, and he actually gets the opportunity to do it often because he's now a part of our staff. Um, he's our Danville campus youth, youth pastor, and his name's Jake Rexroad, or Jack or Jim or something, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but but uh, this past October, I got a chance to go to Israel with Jake. And, uh, and we were, we went on this trip together and, and he was telling people this story because he really likes to make people think I'm a terrible person, which is fun and that's who's leading your kids, Danville. Um, but... But we got, we got to this place in Israel, it's called the Garden Tomb, and it's the place that is believed to be the place where Jesus was buried and rose from the dead. And we were sitting around, there was 45 people in this group, and I was teaching them the story that we read in John chapter 20, where Mary Magdalene went down to the empty tomb, and when she got there, she realized that she couldn't find Jesus' body, that his body was gone, so she started weeping. And two angels came up to her and said, Mary, why are, why are you crying? And she said, my, my Lord was here. I came to see him, but somebody's taken him away. And as she said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener. And as she was, as she was looking at Jesus and, and, and seeing the, this gardener, she said, hey, sir, did you put him somewhere? Tell me where you put him and I'll go find him and I'll bring him back. And after she said that, Jesus looked at her and he said her name. He said, Mary. And right when, when he said her name, right when Jesus said her name, she realized who she was and she ran after him and said, beloved teacher, it's you. You're here. You know, just think of how elated Mary must have been to hear her savior, her teacher, her rabbi call out her name. Because with the utter mention of her name, Mary recognized Jesus. There is so much value in a name. I mean, I mean, when Jesus says Mary's name, you know Mary just had to light up because she was, she was one of Jesus' favorites. He loved her. Jesus loved her. I told the group in Israel that day that you never forget the names of the people you love. You never forget the names of the people you care about most. You never forget the names of your favorites, which was awesome because Jake was sitting right next to me. <laughs> but it was this, it was this, it's just such a cool moment. Like if you've never, 
this is such a side point, but if you've never been to Israel and if you can, if there's any way you can make that work at some point in your life, like put it on your bucket list, it is well worth the trip. It's, it's an incredible experience with God. But as we sat there in this, in this place, in this garden tomb, um, this beautiful and victorious spot in Jerusalem, there was something that captured us in that moment, and it's something that I've been captivated by yet again over the last couple of weeks as I've combed through this list of names here in Nehemiah chapter three, what feels like hundreds of times, is that I'm captivated by the fact that Nehemiah knows their names. Like, like that is so important, it matters so much, and it matters even more when I realize that God knows my name. I mean, think about this. Our God, our Savior, the creator of the universe knows each of our names. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I know my own and they know me. He says that he has called his sheep by name. The prophet Isaiah says, he, he, he writes that the God who created us, who formed us says, I have called you by name, you are mine. The psalmist wrote, God, you know all about me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You know my thoughts before I think them. You, you, you know where I go and where I lie down. You know everything I do, Lord, even before I say a word. You already know it. You are all around me. God knows us. He knows our names. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He, he knows our passions and our desires. He, he knows what needs to be repaired and healed and redeemed and forgiven within us. He knows what, what makes us happy, what brings us contentment, what, what, what fills our hearts and what breaks our hearts. He knows everything about us. He knows my name. I'm his favorite. Each of us are. And so when I read a, a list of names in a chapter like Nehemiah 3, I understand even more how much God cares about names and how much God cares about each of our names. And we know this because of what happened before what we celebrated at the garden tomb that day. That Jesus gave his life for each of us. That no one was excluded from that. Today on, on each of our campuses, we're gonna, we're gonna take communion together. And as we take communion, um, my, my hope is that we, we can just take a moment to remember Jesus' sacrifice and remember how much of a favorite we must be for him to go to that length for us. How much he must care about knowing us to give his life as the penalty for our sins. And as we remember that, let's go out this week with the understanding of how much it must mean for Jesus to want to repair what is broken in and through us by working together as a church family. The bread and cup are being passed around right now and um, we're gonna sing one more song and I'll come back after this song and, and lead us through communion. So once you get those communion elements, just hold on to them. We're gonna take communion together and, and walk through that. But as, as they're being passed around, why don't we um, just spend a little bit of time reflecting on this and, and worshiping together. Let's sing. <laughs>